When you, when you look at the Earth and you look at the moon, which you get to do if you're up that vantage point, at the same time, it's kind of a neat view, and you look at all the craters on the moon, hundreds of thousands of craters, craters on top of craters, right? And you look at the Earth and you go, wait a second, the Earth gets hit more than the moon does. Okay, so the atmosphere protects us from some of it. Plate tectonics in the oceans, they erase a lot of them, but the Earth gets hit by more. And it, knowing a little bit of physics, a little bit of physics is a dangerous thing, but you, you <laughs> say to yourself, wow, you know, the Earth gets hit a lot. And in fact, if you look at the, kind of the, you know, the sort of mass extinction size asteroids, uh, like, like the one that happened 65 million years ago, I mean, those have happened hundreds of times on Earth. So we have had multiple resets of life on Earth. And it feels like maybe on our watch it shouldn't happen again. Conversations at the Interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. I'm very excited about this particular seminar. In our main series, we've uh, one of the earliest talks we had, I think in the very first year of our, our, our SALT series, we had Rusty Schweikert, who is one of the co-founders of the B612 Foundation with Ed Liu, uh, talking about uh, the asteroid threat to Earth. And then uh, later we had Ed in the series. And this is going to be an interesting update, because a lot has evolved in, uh, since then. And, uh, and so he's going to be giving us a good update. And, I, as somebody who people in the press often ask about the long-term future of Earth, you know, they, they are always asking about various existential threats. And, and so they're like, you know, what about climate change? And what about AI? And, I, and, I'm, and I'm always kind of baffled that they think that these are actually existential threats. I mean, they are definitely threats and they might change the way, uh, the way of life on Earth, the carrying capacity of Earth but there are very few truly existential threats. And obviously asteroid impact is truly one of them we know uh, based on, on history that that's the case. And so the idea that, that humanity would create a space program and the first thing we did was you know, race to a little rock that we know wasn't gonna crash into Earth, uh, the moon, um, rather than actually solve this problem was always very confusing to me because we know it's the one that, that can actually wipe out a whole species. And so the rest of it, to me, everything else that we do on Earth besides this project is basically rearranging the chairs on the Titanic to stop it from sinking. Uh, so here tonight is Ed Liu to tell us how to rearrange the chairs to actually help us. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here at the Long Now. Um, I just want to thank Long Now for um, being such good friends of ours, I think we all have a common interest in long-term thinking and uh, preventing ourselves from going the way of the dinosaurs. But uh, long I've always admired the foundation for the things you do and the way you go about uh, thinking about problems, and so it's, it's kind of neat to get to give a talk here. So I want to talk about a couple of things, you know, um, saving the Earth, mapping the solar system, you know, the the bigger picture, so let's get started. So, that's me, that's the title. I just thought I'd start with a little bit of a show and tell. This is a picture that I took from my old office window on board the space station. And um, if anybody's really good at geography, you might recognize that that is north, and this is the Great Lakes. You can see Ontario, Erie, etc. Chicago is right just off the screen there. And helpfully, we've circled in, in the little white circle there, uh, location of Sudbury, Ontario. It's an interesting location because it is the location of some of the richest uh, iron and nickel mines on Earth. And it is actually where one of the original Dow 30 companies was founded, Inco, which was an international nickel company. I think it was what the actual... Uh, abbreviation is for. And uh, to this day, it is still one of the biggest sources of iron and, and nickel on Earth. And the reason it is, is because 
about 100 million years ago, a very large asteroid landed there full of iron and nickel. And so actually, you know, it, it ends up affecting the global economy, again, being an original Dow member, uh, you know, 100 million years later. Who would have thunk it, huh? I'm going to fast forward to February of 2013. This is the Russian city of Chelyabinsk. And uh, this was caught on a dash cam video in Chelyabinsk early in the morning. Uh, that comes flashing across the sky. And it was uh, a much smaller rock, 19 meters across. So, you know, this building here is probably, I'm going to guess, about 12, 13 meters across, maybe a little bit more. So it's not that much larger than this building, but it was moving at about Mach 75 or so, something like that, uh, unlike this building. <laughs> and it exploded in midair. Now, luckily, it wasn't actually that close to the city. This thing is actually about 40 kilometers outside the city and heading away from it. And, and I'm sure all of you know from your days studying hypersonic shock waves that the shock waves move in the forward direction. And therefore, the, the main part of the shock wave went over the city, missing it by about 40 kilometers. Very lucky because the edges of that shock wave did blow out every window in the city, collapsed seven buildings, and sent 1,500 people to the hospital. That's from the fringes of that shock wave. Now, this is a small asteroid. Again, think of flying interval, right? Uh, interval bar. But these things are actually not that uncommon. So these smaller ones, like this, hit Earth every few decades. Anybody here see the news the other day? They just released, although some of us have known about it a little while. But um, in December, there was an explosion. Oh, by the way, I should mention that this explosion was about 30 times the size of the bomb dropped over Hiroshima. Very good sized explosion. In December, there was a 170 kiloton explosion, or about 10 times the size of the bomb dropped over Hiroshima, over the Bering Sea. Luckily, not a lot of population in the Bering Sea, but it happens, right? So, in fact, there was no notice of this coming, and there was no notice of the one in the Bering Strait. Obviously, the one in, in Canada, because there were no humans alive at the time, uh, there was no notice of. But it actually isn't surprising that we don't know about these things hitting, because 99% of the asteroids that we care about that could cause destruction on Earth are actually uncharted, unmapped, and so they would arrive uh, with zero notice. So. That's our challenge, actually, is that 99% of the objects that we might care about that actually affect life here on Earth are uncharted. So what can we do about it, and why might that be important? So I'm going to switch topic a little bit to something <laughs> bigger than saving the Earth, because it turns out there is a bigger picture than saving the Earth. And I want to talk about, I mean, that's sort of like the negative thing you're trying to avoid, right? We want to avoid that. But there's got to be a positive thing, aspect to this, and if I really think about what the bigger picture is, I think that we are on the verge of opening up a brand new frontier. And I'm going to make the argument that throughout human history, the opening of frontiers has been enabled by mapping. Okay, that mapping has been crucial for, in shorthand notation, and there will be a quiz on this, fear, greed, and curiosity. Okay, so as you're at your next cocktail party, you could say fear, greed, and curiosity, that's why we map unknown regions. Okay. There'll be a quiz, and we can all repeat this afterwards. Fear, greed, and curiosity. So let's look at the history of mapping in five minutes. This is a, a map that I really like. It is called the Cantino Planisphere. It was found, interestingly enough, on the wall of a butcher shop in Modeno, Italy, where it, it had languished. It, it had been created in the year 1508 with a lot of intrigue. Various spies had been paid to steal information to create this map. And uh, it was created by sort of unknown characters, uh, probably in Portugal. And um, 1508, look at how detailed this was. It's actually amazing. They, uh, you, know, you can see parts of, Af you can see the kingdoms in Africa, you can see where various animals and sea creatures lived. Uh, you can see um, the first compass roses um, for navigation and so on, and this is kind of, the effort that went into building this, to making this, the amount of money paid in bribes to steal these secrets was extraordinary. And the reason was, is because mapping was very important even in those days. Why? Why did the great powers want to have mapping? They were looking for trade routes. They were looking to defend their territory, and they were looking to see what's out there. 
fear, greed, and curiosity. In this case, trade routes are the, the greed, if you'd like. Where do we put, where are the lines of defense? Where should we put our, our, our forts? That's the fear part. Curiosity, you know, what, what else might we find out there? There's a whole big world out there. Let's fast forward. This is a map which is, uh, comes from the Rumsey Map Center, which is a beautiful place down at, at uh, some of you may know about it, it's down at Stanford. And it is one of the Lewis and Clark maps. So if you recall, not any of you were alive back then, but when we purchased, the United States purchased the Louisiana Purchase, the very first thing Thomas Jefferson did is he sent out Lewis and Clark on what was called the core of discovery. And he actually instructed them himself in the art of celestial navigation so that they could make maps. Because they were sent out there to chart the new territories for three reasons. Navigable passage, points of defense, and to find samples of the flora and fauna, fear, greed, and curiosity. And that is, in fact, what Lewis and Clark did. If you ever get a chance to go down to Stanford, go check it out. You can see originals. Really cool. So let's talk a little bit about sort of non-mapping, not, not sort of classical mapping, but it's the, the concept still is true. In the 1990s, as the science of genetics really began to advance, one of the things we realized is if we really wanted to fully take advantage of the, this new frontier of, of genomics was to map the human genome. Why? Because we wanted to know the relationships between different genes, um, and that would tell us how to potentially protect ourselves from diseases, that's the fear part, how to develop medicines that could make a lot of money, there's the greed part, and how we as humans evolved to become what we are today, because the record is in the human genome. Curiosity, it's the same thing. So this idea of opening up of new frontiers and mapping, they're in, integra, int, intimately linked. So. What is the next great frontier? I think there's a bunch of them, but the one I'm, I want to concentrate on is uh, the great frontier of space. And I want to point something out to you. This is a chart from a Morgan Stanley report, but there's a similar report from Goldman Sachs and I believe also a Merrill Lynch one, very similar. It turns out that the global space economy is actually already $350 billion annually. And it's growing very, very fast. It comes in a bunch of different areas. And this is sort of the money that's being spent on companies doing things in space. A lot of this is communications for now, but it's growing very fast. And they said if the current rates continue, we'll reach a trillion dollars in you know, not that long at, three, at, the, at the current 7% growth rate. Now, if you think about the, uh, you know, you, you all know the greatest force known to man is the power of compound interest, right? 7% growth rates means that this will actually overtake the Earth's, the, the terrestrial economy, in about 100 years. If you, you know, all things being maintained, and you never know. But it's not that long. Think of China's growth rates, which are considered extreme, at 8%, okay? And think of how far that, that has changed in the last 20 years between China and, call it the United States, or Europe, which had a, has a 2% growth rate. Um, small percentages differences over 20, 30, 40 years make an enormous difference, and this has that potential. How else, what is other corroborating evidence for that? This is the number of spacecraft launched per year. Um, where green is private launches, and then the other countries, Russian, US, and so on, this is just the number of launches. Um, look at the last few years. Look what's happened here. And why has it gone up so much? It's green, it's private. Private launches, in fact, 18 is off the top of this chart and 19 is expected to be even higher. So, and if you look at the plans for the upcoming launches, it goes way up above the chart at the top of this chart. Two reasons, cheaper launch, thank you SpaceX and Blue Origin, and because of that, they, their effect on the big incumbents, they're all getting cheaper. And two, it's the increasing capability brought out by small electronics. The combination of those two is making it easier to do things in space so that private investment can now do things that only superpowers could do 30 years ago. Um, there are many space startups in the Bay Area, and it's taken off. Now, will this continue at this pace? Nobody knows. You know, it's going to go up and down. There's going to be recessions. There's going to be things like that. But the fact of the matter, if you maintain a high growth rate over 20 or 30 years, 
This dominates over the terrestrial economy end of next century, before the end of next century, which is interesting, right? So when people say, you know, how long will it be until the space economy is, of, is critically important? I, mean, I would say it's already critically important. How long until it dominates? It may be in your kid's lifetime. It's not that outlandish to think that, because these, the way these things always work is everyone goes, yeah, it's insignificant, it's insignificant, until suddenly, oh, it dominates. And that can happen over a period of 10 or 20 years, as we've seen, for instance, with China. I just like this picture. <laughs> I think it's a, an example of where, you know, that, that's uh, Elon Musk's roadster on its way to, out of uh, Earth, Earth's gravity towards the uh, asteroid belt. So my argument is that the opening of the space frontier is going to be enabled by the first comprehensive maps. Not that it's the only thing, that they're obviously launch and all these other things are going to be critically important, but a key aspect of this is going to be mapping. Okay? It's going to be for the same three reasons, fear, greed, and curiosity. So what do I mean by mapping? Let's give a picture of what the solar system looks like. Let's talk about the inner solar system, and that's, that's where this, this development is going to take place. The outer solar system is many times further out, but the inner solar system really is the Earth. Out, uh, if you see that there's the Sun there, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Call that the inner solar system. We have one in the back. And uh, we'll talk about that. It's really cool. <laughs> but this is every single known asteroid. Okay, so you can see the asteroid belt, and you can see all, these things are called near-Earth objects, or near-Earth asteroids, the ones in the middle, those are the ones that can hit Earth, those are the ones that actually are interesting for a lot of reasons. But this is, remember, 1% of what's out there, okay? So if you'd like, the map looks like the, the 1400s map of the Earth. I knew where the big continents were. Anything smaller than that? Eh, some of it we know, most of it we don't. But those details matter. And the more commerce and the more um, trade, the more development, the more people go these places, the finer the scale on which you need to know, need to have your map, right? Because, I mean, who would have thought, you know, 20 or 30 years ago that uh, how important mapping would be to our, you know, mapping on the scale of one meter would be to our everyday lives. It, the more, you know, th these things feed upon themselves. The maps help develop the, the frontier. The frontier demands better maps. And, and, and that kind of thing is going to happen, I believe. So let's talk about the fear, greed, and curiosity. Maybe not in that order. I think I've mixed them up. So let's talk about curiosity as a science. If you want to know the evolution of the Earth, that record is written in the asteroids. Because these are primordial things that, that can't, they're basically failed planetary pieces. And their locations and their orbits tell you how the solar system formed, as well as how the orbits of the planets have changed over the years, and it, they have. So if you want to go visit these bodies and take samples and begin to understand the, the geology of these bodies, then you need to have a map of where they all are. Right? So here's a cool picture, I thought. This is a Japanese probe that's just about to land on this asteroid. This happened about three weeks ago. Um, it dipped down and it picked up some samples. Um, there's a really cool YouTube video on this. Um, and it's, it's sending a, uh, it's going to shoot a little projectile into it to try and create a little tiny crater coming up here in the next, I think, want to say next week. And it'll bring those samples back to Earth. But if you don't know where the majority of these objects are, you can't visit them. You have to know very precisely where an object is. We'll talk a little bit more how it's even more complicated because everything is moving. So it's not really where it is, it's where it's going to be. So, so agreed. So, if indeed there is development throughout the solar system, and I believe there will be, then maps are going to be important because, A, if, you know, if people are going to live in space, where are they going to get their materials from? They're going to get them from, you can get them from planetary bodies, the surface of the Earth and the Moon or things like that, but you have to lift them out of the gravity field. And as anybody who knows that has ever um, seen a very large rocket take off. It, it, it takes a lot of energy to get things off the surface of a planet. And a lot of energy basically equates to a lot of cost. 
the easiest place to get materials from is from asteroids because they have very low surface gravity and you can just grab stuff. Also comes with complications of operating there because sometimes it's more convenient to have gravity holding you in one spot. I can say this for sure in that when you're in space, it's, you know, if you're weightless, it, it can sometimes be a pain in the butt to tell you the truth, but uh, <laughs> you didn't hear me say that. Um, this was all foreshadowed by a guy named Jerry O'Neill, very influential guy in the late 60s, early 70s, who started talking about colonies in space and making the argument that if you look at the continued growth of resource needs and energy needs on Earth, you cannot have exponential growth on planet Earth for more than a couple more centuries at anywhere near current rates. And therefore, if there, your society either stagnates in size or it moves outwards, and that the amount of materials and energy in space are many, many, many orders of magnitude larger than what's here on our little planet. So he argued that at some point it's inevitable. And you know, maybe that, that's a thousand years from now, but I, what I was arguing earlier is that maybe that's within 50 or 100 years at which people begin to move out. But at some point we surely have to. And one of the things we do know is that human societies that, have, that stop growing actually tend to decay. You know, we, we've, we've seen this, you know, the, you know, some of the great empires, the Roman Empire, ones that have stopped growing for some reason have turned inwards. You know, maybe this all has to do with human nature and this is beyond the scope of this talk, but I think it's, I think it's important to have a frontier for people to move into. Just wanted to show this. This is an interesting chart. Uh, this is the Permian Basin in Texas. It's a, it's a resource claims map. It's, it's an oil claims map. These things are extraordinarily important because when you have a map of where the locations of resources are, so all these different color codes are different, uh, who, who owns that claim? And these things are important because if you cannot lay claim to finding some resource and somebody else can just take it from you, then you have no incentive to invest the capital to extract any resources from it, right? So the United States managed to uh, you know, develop a lot of things because you people, companies, could lay claim to things. And having a resource map is crucial to that. So this is an example of the way they're used on Earth. But if you think out into the solar system, if a company goes to the effort of finding that there is something usable on some location, how do they lay claim to it? What's the proper way for, is it a number in a table or is it a map? I, I really think the way, the way is going to be, it's going to be a map. And last, let's talk about the end of the Earth or, or preventing the end of the Earth. Unfortunately, these rocks whizzing around the sun that I showed you in that early thing sometimes hit the Earth. The most famous one to people is the one that killed off the dinosaurs. That was 65 million years ago. It, it was an object smaller than the Bay Area by quite a bit. It's about roughly the size of San Francisco. And it, and it killed about 90% of the, the species on Earth by heating the entire atmosphere of the Earth over a period of a few hours to about 500 degrees. Sets fire to everything. It's a really bad day. Basically, everything dies or burns up that day. It, it's a really, it's a fast thing. It's not, uh, it's not as people picture where it's drawn out over decades. It's not. It's generally, it, most of those things died in day one. On a much smaller level, this is June 30th, 1908. This is the Siberian forest of Tunguska, where there was an explosion of an object about 40 meters across. So picture double the size of the interval, okay, in diameter, making it two cubed or eight times larger. Um, and it took out an area roughly the size of the San Francisco Bay Area. So this had energy a few hundred, uh, not quite a thousand times, between 500 and 1,000 times the energy of the, the bomb dropped over Hiroshima. So if you overlay the area of destruction on any of the sort of major cities, you see that uh, it wouldn't be good for, to get hit by one of these. And now let's everybody say together, how, what fraction of these have we discovered? 1%. So 99 out of 100 of them arrive unannounced. Okay. Now, luckily, most of the Earth is unpopulated. But you know, if it's not your day, well, and as I like to say, the, the, you know, the, the way 
forward on this isn't to rely on hope as your strategy. Okay? <laughs> we can do something about it, you know, and we're at that point where we can and we should. So what do I mean by a space map? Unlike the older maps, which were two-dimensional, the map of space has got to be inherently three-dimensional. There's, there's a third dimension to it. And there's a fourth dimension to it, time. Because remember, everything was moving. So you can't just say, where is an object? You have to say, where is an object at what time? And the speeds are not slow like tectonic plates. They are extraordinarily fast in the range of 50 to 100,000 miles per hour for almost all these objects. Okay? But it turns out people have actually for a long time been building maps, if you'd like, of the solar system. So an example is that thing back there, the orrery. Um, in fact, that's a map, that is a model of the solar system. And if you really think about what this thing, this space map is, it is a three-dimensional depiction where time is, can be set as a slider, for instance, where everything is moving. And that thing, when you crank it up, shows the planets. And, and th those were used you know, hundreds of years ago to, for people to understand how the planets moved around the sun and how the, their moons moved around the planets and so on. That was a visual aid to understand, in some sense, that you can make these things anatomically accurate in that the lo relative locations of the, they're not to scale, but the relative locations, the directions are correct. And uh, what we want to do is build this map of the solar system. So what does that mean in the modern day and age? Well, first off, I need to be, in order to know where the asteroids are now, what I need to do is I've got to build telescopes. I need to observe an asteroid, and I need to watch it move for some period of time so I can figure out what its orbit is. And then I need to have math, and I need to understand orbital mechanics, and I can calculate the, the trajectory of that one particular asteroid. And now I re need to repeat by a million times. There's a million or so asteroids that, and I need to do this, and I need to update these things. So the first thing you need to building a really good map of the solar system is telescopes. Now, this isn't that much different than how we map the surface of the Earth. You know, we had spy satellites, which became commercial satellites looking down at the Earth. And, but the original ones were built by governments. And that data was held secret and tightly held, eventually became open, and eventually became publicly available. And a couple of companies were able to take these publicly available information and make really good use of it, different than the way the CINLS and those types of folks looked at things. They built things that were usable. They built Google Earth. They built Google Maps. They built MapQuest. What we want to do is follow that same tack. We want to take data from these telescopes. And these are some interesting telescopes. The one up there is one called PanSARS. It's in Hawaii. So the, and uh, it's on the top of Maui. And uh, it is the current most powerful telescope for finding tracking asteroids on Earth. The one in the middle is one called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. It is, a, uh, it is going to be the world's largest survey telescope for finding asteroids and, and looking into the uh, formation and evolution of, of the universe. Uh, that, was, that is being built currently in Chile by the National Science Foundation for about $700 million. And uh, it becomes operational in about two and a half years. And so the, that thing there is about 50 times more powerful than this one. And so what's going to happen here is that the publicly available data sets, remember this is paid for by the US government, is going to explode. There's going to be an enormous number of new discoveries. Now, it's not going to find all the asteroids we want to find, but it's going to do a heck of a lot better than anything out there right now. So what it means is we're going to have a lot of data. What are we going to do with it? How are we preparing to deal with this data? How do we make that map out of this data? Because really what this thing is finding is not, it's not producing a map any more than Google Maps is the same as a bunch of photographs of the Earth taken by spy satellites. Somebody had to build a system that allows you to navigate around and allows you to do things like turn-by-turn -turn directions, you know, place my store here, that sort of stuff. All those things are what made Google Maps useful. That's not been done for the solar system for navigating to asteroids, for calculating what if an asteroid might hit the Earth, if for laying resource claims, for doing deep space navigation. All those things are going to be services built on a map. So maps are changing from two-dimensional to four-dimensional, and they're changing from static objects to services. 
And, and if you think about what this map is going to be, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a, it's something that exists in computers that people can access and use and build off of. Down in the lower right, uh, it turns out that we believe that there is ways to go beyond what even this telescope can do. And taking advantage of very, very rapid uh, computer graphics processing, thank you to the video game and movie industries, billions of dollars have been pumped into that, and cryptocurrency, believe it or not, um, that investment has allowed us to do graphics processing on a scale that was, is, would have been unheard of even 10 years ago. And we have shown that if you have that, you can take small telescopes, unlike this behemoth. I mean, this thing is it's almost 30 feet across, the, that main mirror. Um, and shrink that down to something about this big. And rather than taking short exposures, you take very, very, very long exposures that are complicated with lots of asteroids moving in all sorts of different, different directions that are all much dimmer than just the background noise. And, and pull all those asteroids out if you have fast enough graphics processing. You basically you, you, you stack images, for those who know what that means, and, and, you, and you check every possible combination. And if you can do 10 to the 13th or so computations per second, doable today, you can pull those asteroids out of the noise. And we've shown that this works uh, uh, on a ground-based telescope. And that means that a space telescope could actually be quite small for doing this. Very exciting. But anyhow, the, the, the data is coming. What do you do with the data? Again, you have to build this. You have to turn it into something usable. A, data, a map is more than just a pile of numbers. It is, a, it, it is a system, think Google Maps, that allows you to query it and get the information you want and add things to it. It's open. It's extensible. Others can add information, others can, can extract information, and you have tools that allow you to do things like zoom and go places and calculate trajectories, or in the case of Google Maps, turn by turn directions to my house. And that, in fact, is what we're building. So this is the beginnings of it. Um, it's just, a, it, it is a, uh, a depiction of, we're only showing 100 asteroids here, because if you show them all, it becomes a giant mess. So you have to figure out ways to only see the things you want. So you have to have filters in here, too, that allow you. Because you don't want to see everything. If there's a million asteroids in there, it's a, it's a giant mess. One of the things that we are working on is how do you see three-dimensional things in flat, you know, on a flat screen? And it's, it's tough on a flat screen. And how do you manipulate it? Like, let's say, if I want to move some object, let's say if I move this object from here to here, or I wait from time here, some time to another time, how do I do that? And that is something that, that perhaps, an, an augmented reality or a virtual reality type thing, maybe that's the right solution for this sort of thing. Or maybe at some point we'll have, we'll have better holographic projectors other than the small ones, which we have available today. But you know, I, I can picture in my head an augmented reality thing where someone could step into a very large room and see those asteroids I showed earlier on floating throughout, you know, moving. And I could look at individual ones and where I want to go and where I want to start from and how I navigate between them and that that could be the interface at some point. So that's what the map of the solar system is going to be. And that's what we at the Asteroid Institute, part of B612 Foundation, are doing. So there are some of you who may remember some years ago, we set out to say, hey, there was this big problem that we need to find and track all these asteroids. And our first going in thing was, well, we need to build a really big telescope. Very expensive. And that's what we set out to do. Um, around that time, a few years later, uh, is when the National Science Foundation said, well, we will build this telescope you know, for three quarters of a billion dollars. And what we realized is that means we didn't need to build that telescope. And maybe we should concentrate on how you make use of this data, how you turn it into something usable, how we build that map for the, you know, for the next 100 years. And uh, so it's become, in some sense, largely a computational computer science slash uh, astrophysics problem, as opposed to a build a very, very, very large expensive telescope problem. And uh, it's, uh, it's changed our thinking on things. But um, it's been quite a journey so, thus far. And so that's basically what we're up to. And when I say continued, um, you know, we need to be ready here in the next few years, because there's an awful lot of data coming down the pike in about two and a half years. The floodgates of that telescope in Chile open up, 
and there's going to be uh, about 50 times more discoveries than we see each and every. Currently, that rate's going up by about a factor of 50, and we should be ready for it. So that is how I see this playing out. And uh, I just want to thank you for, for coming tonight, and uh, happy to answer any question on anything. Turn me on. All right. Um, and I should say, we actually have, uh, as we get reset here with some chairs, that we do have a larger online audience. We're um, experimenting with our stream being on a broader platform. It's on Facebook. Is our Facebook thing working? Facebook people, welcome Facebook. Everyone say, welcome Facebook people. <laughs> welcome Facebook people. All right. All right. Uh, so, yes. So, um, we do have that audience, and uh, because of that, and because I got in trouble last time for being, having bad mic discipline with our questions uh, for the recording afterwards. So there's 50 of us here in the room, but over 1,000, uh, or actually I think now or close, close to 3,000 people listen to this podcast for the interval alone. Um, so if you, if, you, if you do one of these things where you start answering the question like that, no one can hear your question. And then we cut your whole question and your whole answer from that. Um, and um, so please uh, do that. And if you do a follow-up question with no mic, you also get cut. So Don't be that person. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like we're all here in this room, but we're not. There's another few thousand people that are going to want to listen to this afterwards. So try and help. And so, yes, short questions. We don't need your bio. We just need a very short, concise question. We'll, we'll work with that. Um, those are, I think those are all the things I got in trouble for last time, right? All right. Um, can you, I mean, I know that we've heard many times that um, astronauts who go to space and look back down on Earth are changed. And I, um, I can only assume that the reason the B612 Foundation, does anyone know, understand the B612 reference? Yes. Little Prince, yes, the Little Prince. Is prince. the Little Prince up here, by the way? It is up here, yes, okay. it is in the Good. manual. Just checking. Sure. Um, in any case, um, that two astronauts and two uh, planetary scientists um, founded the B612, but I wanted to hear a little bit about your personal story of how you, why, why this matters to you aside from you live on this planet. When you, when you look at the Earth and you look at the moon, which you get to do if you're up that vantage point, at the same time, it's kind of a neat view, and you look at all the craters on the moon, hundreds of thousands of craters, craters on top of craters, right? And you look at the Earth and you go, wait a second. The Earth gets hit more than the moon does. Okay, so the atmosphere protects us from some of it. Plate tectonics in the oceans, they erase a lot of them. But the Earth gets hit by more. And it, knowing a little bit of physics, a little bit of physics is a dangerous thing, but you, you <laughs> say to yourself, wow, you know, the Earth gets hit a lot. And in fact, if you look at the, kind of the, you know, the sort of mass extinction size asteroids, uh, like, like the one that happened 65 million years ago, I mean, those have happened hundreds of times on Earth. So we have had multiple resets of life on Earth. And it feels like maybe on our watch it shouldn't happen again. And actually, if you could help solve an argument that Stuart Brand and I have been having is that... <laughs> Stuart's right. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Well, you don't know which side he's on. <laughs> um, and so you say that we've only mapped 1%, but are they, is it really the, is it now the biggest 1%? Are we... Are, are there extinction-level event um, asteroids out there at, to a large extent at this point that we have not mapped? Where are we yeah, in that it's, space? Uh, I was oversimplifying in the sense that there are big asteroids and there are small asteroids, and the bigger ones are easier to spot. They're bigger. You can spot them from further distance away. So the larger they are, the greater the chance that we've seen it. So if you get to the point where they're large enough to wipe out human civilization, we've seen about 90 95% we think of those. Okay, and so that's pretty good. Doesn't mean that we've seen them all. Now, when you get down to the ones sort of like, uh, call it 140 meters, we're down in the sort of 10 to 30% range. Um, and, and just for reference, that's a 100 megaton explosion. This is, you know, I think something 100 times bigger than what we saw in Tunguska. So there we're not doing as well by the time you got down to that small. And by the time you get down to something that would only destroy us like a major city, we're in the 1% range. So it's, it, the bigger they are, the easier they are to see. And 
I'm also really curious. I mean, there's Tunguska, Chebelin, Cheblinsk, Chelyabinsk, uh, the Bering <laughs> Strait. What, why do asteroids hate Russia so much? <laughs> they do, in fact. No. No. Um, a lot of it is just landmass. Yeah. No, I just flew over all of Russia to Siberia, and I, oh, I, I wow. can that's a long definitely. Trip. But it also is very curious to me. So I mean, I, I get that you, you know, shouldn't Russia, take the train. Russia is the biggest country, so it definitely is going to hit there more. But it also is curious to me that I've never heard of human record of massive tsunamis created by um, asteroids, because you think with vastly more land area, well, non-land area being water area, that we would have seen, we would have human record of massive tsunamis created. There, there are human rec there are massive tsunamis. There are records of those all around the world. Uh, and you know this by finding things like seashells up the sides of mountains and so on. Problem is, you don't know whether that was an earthquake or what caused it, right? right? In, some cases, in some few cases, you can say, oh, this was due to this event, because we have very good timing, like there was one in Japan in, I want to say, 1600-something, and they know the earthquake uh, because of tree rings in Seattle. But the, the fact of the matter is you, you can't tell where it came we from. We don't know in antiquity if those were earthquakes or asteroids. Yes. Right. Uh, earthquakes are more common. Yeah. Um, and so you're going to be, raise your hand if you do have a question. I know there's probably no questions in the audience, but uh, he'll, <laughs> he'll be uh, passing that out to you. I, I'm going to still uh, take some of mine, because I have, have a bunch here. You have um, the power of the microphone. <laughs> um, the, no, actually, I think I actually got, oh, the, I mean, the other question I have is, you know, so we had, the, what was the name? It was more of a comet than an asteroid, the Oumuamua. 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 Okay. Well, and yeah. that's a, I mean, that's a stunningly large object to have moved through our atmosphere. And I realized it came out of the ecliptic plane, more like a comet, which I guess to, you should, can you distinguish yeah. what comets are versus asteroids and, and why they're possibly more surprising? Actually, this is than... even crazier than that. But uh, comets are things are generally icy bodies that come from very far away from the sun, come shooting into the middle and go back out, sometimes regularly, like Halley's Comet. Asteroids are things like that we showed going around the sun inside fairly regular small orbits, you know, kind of in our part of the neighborhood. Oumuamua was a very, it, by the way, it, it was, it's a Hawaiian name because it was discovered by astronomers in Hawaii. And this was discovered last year and it was a very interesting object because it was moving really fast. In fact, it was moving fast enough that we knew that it was actually going to fly through the solar system and go out. But if it was flying through the solar system, that meant it came from outside the solar system because it, did, it had way too much energy to have been pulled in by the sun's gravity. It could never, the sun could not accelerate it to that speed. That means this was an extraterrestrial visitor from some other star system. And uh, that was clearly established, but its speed was just way too high. What made it even more interesting is, and one of our researchers at the Asteroid Institute, Bryce Bolin, was intimately involved with noticing this is they, they it, it was so far away that we couldn't actually get a picture of it. So you can't see the actual thing. But what you could see is the brightness of it. What they noticed is that the brightness was varying. It was getting dimmer and then brighter, then dimmer, then brighter. And that's because it, it's not round, right? So if you're looking at it sideways, you know, you're, it looks bigger, you know, and then if you're looking at it end on, it looks smaller. And by the difference in brightness between the brightest and the dimmest part, you could tell what the fraction, uh, how elongated it was, right? Because if it was a sphere, it wouldn't change at all. If it, it turns out this thing is shaped like a needle. It's 10 times longer than it was wide. And that's a really strange looking object. So, you know, there, there were a lot of crazy things in British tabloid newspapers came out, but in, and, 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 I'm, and I'm not saying it was aliens, it was aliens, but, um, but <laughs> don't, don't quote me on that, no. Um, well, it definitely was alien of some. It was yeah. non-solar system, yeah. yeah. So it, it came and it went. It's on its way out of the solar system right but now. I, that whole story, I think, really struck me as something that came through the inner solar system, not the outer solar system, but the inner solar yeah, it system. it came right past the sun. That was a, Pretty large object. Yeah, good size. We still we didn't even get a picture of it. Like that's how bad our vision is in our own inner solar system of objects moving through it. Well, I think uh, it's amazing that we saw it at all. Well, uh, that's yeah, one way to look I mean, at it. Yeah, yeah. but uh, I, I, you know, I would think yeah. that I would like to 
you know, if some major object, even if it was a spacecraft, that that's how crappy we would be at, at seeing. <laughs> yeah. Well, so we've got we've got a ways to go in terms of our telescopes, and, and they're getting better. Yeah. Like I said, that large synoptic survey telescope is—they're flipping the switch here, coming up soon, and we think we can do even better that e eventually. But we are really going to be discovering these asteroids and tracking them. And so then the question I mean, is, what do you do with that? It's very likely that objects like that having whizzing by us, and we just haven't been seeing them. Obviously. Quite possible. Yeah. Quite possible. All right, I'll let somebody else ask a question. Come back. Uh, so you were you in the conversation before the talk? You were talking about having to be ten minutes ahead when you're flying a fast airplane, um, and you're thinking. And so I'm assuming that you're in you're building into your software to start digesting this data. Are you building in smoke alarms and alerts like that? Something you found something that's about to hit. Well, and what would be the what would be the ten minutes? What's the time frame yeah. in which you'd be you know? Looking I should for back it up, and I didn't mention this that. If you find something that's going to hit the Earth, deflecting it is actually relatively easy. Because if you find it many years before it hits the Earth, say 10, 20 years before it hits the Earth, remember the Earth is going to go around the sun 10 or 20 times, as will that object. So these things have a long ways to travel before they hit. And that means a tiny, tiny, tiny change in their, in their orbit will keep it, something from hitting the Earth. You just slow the Earth down a little bit. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. So everybody needs to There's a great new Chinese yes. movie coming out about yes. this. Actually. But, for those of you who took physics, if we all jump at the same time, we don't change the velocity of the Earth because we're connected to it, right? You need an external momentum. So what you actually boring do, answer. yeah, the boring answer is to change the <laughs> orbits of the asteroid by a tiny amount. And uh, one of the things that we had been urging since the foundation of our, our uh, the B612 Foundation is that we human beings ought to test that technology because we know how to do it. And in fact, NASA is now going to do that test. It's called the DART mission. Again, about 2022, I believe it is. Um, we're just going to actually run a small spacecraft into an asteroid. And that is actually sufficient in the mass majority of cases to keep an asteroid from hitting the Earth, uh, provided you have notice. Now, right. now I don't want to go back. Now, back to your question, the, you know, predicting that something's going to hit re requires you be able to calculate you know, orbits very, very accurately and know the uncertainties in order to calculate you know, what are the chances that this thing hits. And uh, I don't want to give the impression that we're the only ones doing it. There are other people that think of, you know, they calculate these things and they put these things in big tables. Okay. But think of what the difference is between Google Maps and if somebody listed for you every restaurant in New York City in a big table. What's the difference? And why is, why was Google Maps so important to commerce, to, to things like Lyft and Uber? They, they all started by using Google Maps, Yelp, Airbnb. Because they didn't, the, the visual mapping part, the, the underlying uh, machinery was built for them, and they could just build on top of it. And so what we want to do is allow people to build navigation tools for the solar system without having to do all the heavy lifting, because 99.99% of the calculation is exactly the same. It can happen in the background. And so we want to provide that as a service. Well, that's a great lead into um, a couple of the questions that came in online beamed into my head. Um, the, Are you the alien? Yes. Um, they talked to me. The, um, so you talked a, a little bit about the, these massive uh, ground-based telescopes as well as some space-based ones. Um, but is there still a role for small citizen science t and telescopes? And, uh, and, a, and a related question is, what is the other citizen science uh, elements like as related to something like SETI at home where computation, some of this massive computation might be distributed uh, for people to get involved? Well, I, I think it is much of the back end of a map like this isn't something that the citizen, it's not amenable to being broken up into hundreds of thousands of little small things. But where the citizens can come in is when you give them tools to do more creative applications based off of it. So think of the you know, hundreds of thousands of applications built on Apple Maps or Google Maps or MapQuest, right? That's where the creativity is going to be come in. But frankly, the, you know, the massive size databases that we're talking about aren't things that are going to be stored on somebody's home computer as of right now. Um, those are things that are going to be in the cloud. They're so big, they're, they're, um, and, and you need so much computational power to pull that things out. But you can produce something like that, right? So if, I wanted to draw a map of you know, how to get from 
my house here, you know, driving all the way to Toronto, Canada, right? How, what, what, how could I have done that in 1990? You know, now it'll take me 30 seconds. I'll plot it out and I'll hit print, right? Or if I wanted to do a map of like, you know, where are all the coffee shops in, you know, Gary, Indiana? I could do that, right? Or, you know, somebody in Gary, Indiana is more likely to do that. But those are the type of applications that are eventually going to be needed, uh, I predict, if when there is a thriving space economy. And it, I don't think that's 100 years from now. And it what about small telescopes? I mean, we still, it still seems like, you know, we, we find out about certain objects are named after actually fairly small, you know, home-based astronomy efforts. Is that, is that going to still be happening at, at a limited level, or is it going to be more these uh, massive telescopes? And it's going to be more the massive telescopes because the massive telescopes are going to be so much more sensitive. Where the small telescopes can become important is that sometimes when you see an asteroid, it's because it's coming past the Earth very close, and it's moving quickly, and it's going to go away within a week or so, and it won't be visible by anyone. But you want to get as many observations as possible during that week when it's visible. And the more telescopes that can be pointed at it, these are called follow-on observations, where somebody says, we've seen one, here's where it roughly is, and they go find it. And there are small telescopes that are operated by amateurs around the world, and they're very important for that. But they, don't, they won't be as good at the discovery aspect. Gotcha. Do we have any more questions right here? Yeah, so, um the Chelyabinsk asteroid apparently came out of the sun. And as I understand it, uh, telescopes on Earth can't actually be pointed at the sun. Um, so one of the B612's things was to put a, a, um, you know, a telescope in space, in interior orbit to the Earth in order to see those, those asteroids too. Um, is that still something you're trying to do? Is there a need well, for that? I should correct you a little bit in that the reason you wanted to put the, the telescope in wasn't because you were going to catch things when they were uh, um, looking at them at the sun. Remember, you were going to find them decades before they hit, many, after many, many, many orbits later before they hit. Okay? What that gives you by moving inwards is, is a, you discover more asteroids more frequently because you're, you're further inwards. I can, see it, I can see objects at a greater percentage of the time. So it wasn't that, because an asteroid that's going to hit the Earth at some point has to have in its orbit, it has to go at least as far away from the sun as the Earth. Otherwise, it can't hit the, hit the Earth, right? So at some point, they'll always cross Earth's orbit if they're going to hit Earth. And so. And was it the case, uh, you mentioned that they, it came out of the sun, I think, from that means the direction of that the means, sun? Yeah, or? that means on its last approach, it was coming that way. Now, if it hadn't hit Earth, it would have flown past it and gone outside and gone the other way, right? So you'll, you'll see it on the other side. So you got to get out of your mind the picture that I'm just spotting it before it hits the Earth. Again, I'm going to spot this thing early. I'm going to spot it a bunch of times. I'm going to calculate it in orbit and know. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's coming in from the other uh, side. So what sun. you're saying is it's going to cross Earth's path many, many times before the Earth happens to be in the way. Yeah, it'll cross the orbit of Earth. Yeah. The Earth may not be there at that point, but it'll cross the orbit of the Earth. And I think that's time. actually a crucial thing that we're talking about, is that you know, you're talking about creating you know, Google Maps for, for um, asteroid objects, but what you're also talking about is creating a, not a three-dimensional map, um, but a four-dimensional map, that this is, that, you're, it, that works backwards and forwards in time by, that's right. by actually decades, hopefully. Yeah, you should be able to go backwards just you know, to say, oh, where was that object before? Maybe I'm interested in it for some reason. Um, Thank you. We have, we have, do you have a question up front? I did, yeah. Thanks for the talk. Um, in a prior uh, uh, lecture you gave at the Marine Memorial Theater, you talked about the foundation building satellites to be in orbit, but facing out from the sun, mm -hmm. and something about them having kind of a much more accurate detection level because it was a yeah, the the reason for that is just because you 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 know looking away from the sun, you get the the background sky the, is dimmer, and that means I can see dimmer asteroids. So you, that's why telescopes work much better at night because you're looking at you know the the sky itself is less bright in that direction, and that that's all it is. And besides the the ground based um, telescopes and maybe some of these smaller telescopes, are there any of the um, like the Kepler-like telescopes or any of those that are going to help some of the detection efforts? 
Uh, Kepler, uh, Kepler Light, well, not Kepler, because Kepler's Kepler. been shut down. Yeah. But uh, the there, next generation. there is a potential NASA telescope, um, which they're fighting to get funding for. Um, hopefully it does. It's called NeoCam, and it will find um, a large number of asteroids, too. It still will not be able to find the smallest ones that we want to find, but the very numerous ones. But it's going to be in sort of the same category of effectiveness as LSST. And the combination of those two is, is better than one or the other. And are there some things like the powered radio telescopes like Arecibo that can detect darker objects better? Or is that an effort that's still uh, Arecibo, ongoing? for those who don't know, it is a giant radar built in a valley in Puerto Rico. and. Uh, Radar is great for seeing things that are very large and very close. Because the, uh, well, the, the secret to understanding radars is the signal drops off as what's called 1 over r squared, the further you get away from something. So 1 over r is the distance. But the signal coming back also drops off as 1 over r squared. So radars drop off as 1 over r to the fourth, which means you make something twice as far away, it becomes 16 times harder to see, which means radar doesn't work very well at all for small objects. It's, it's really a horrible solution for small objects. Gotcha. Other questions? Oh, well, yeah, who, we have a mic in the back. Is it, can you hear me? So yes, and if you, sorry, just to interrupt, if you do have a question between questions, keep your hand up and get his attention so that he knows to come to you. There you go. So first of all, thanks so much. Um, the question is somewhere between fear and curiosity. And that's, if I understand it correctly, there was no uh, residue or anything left at the Tunguska impact site. Is that correct? So if that's the case, then my question is, how big does something have to be to leave something behind? Does that make sense? Yeah, the question is, was there residue left at the Tunguska site? Well, the first thing to notice is that the first expeditions to that site were more than a decade later. Uh, I want to say almost 20 years later, before they managed to get to that site. That's how remote it was. So the chances of finding any residue at that point, you know, with harsh winters and melting of snow and you know, repeat and rinse and repeat, um, are pretty small. So we, I don't think they, no one really expected to find, uh, you know, fresh debris like you could had had someone been able to get to it right away. So. Um, the fact that, that there isn't much, you know, is actually not surprising at all. But, but also, in general, these things break up before they hit Earth. Yeah, the, the, the asteroid at Tunguska did break up in the atmosphere and explode in the atmosphere, which things of that size tend to do. Uh, the bigger, if you get bigger than that, they'll hit the ground. Around, that's around the transition size at which you're likely to have an air explosion. Um, and, but just know that an air explosion can be just as damaging, if not more damaging, than a ground explosion. Um, one of the sort of uh, interesting, I don't know if interesting is the right word, but um, macabre uh, things is that if you want to maximize damage from a nuclear weapon, you explode it in the air, because it's the shock wave that destroys things. And a question from online, um, are there are there any profit business business models for your solar system map um, that you can see right now? I mean, I, I know that we have all these private space efforts, um, and you mentioned, I think, a little bit about potential uh, using of these, the material for off-world uses, but uh, can you elaborate a little bit on the economics of that? Someday, when the, it's a chicken and egg thing, right? When the economy develops out there, such a thing is guaranteed to be valuable. The question is, when is that gonna happen? So while there may be profitable things, is it investable? I don't know. Because investable means I have a timeline on which I expect a return. And if you don't know, so what are the kinds of organizations that can invest when you don't know when the return is? So venture capital funds, not so much. They, they, they owe it to their limited partners to return money within a certain period of time. Governments, yes. Um, individuals. The VC fund. Yeah. Individu individuals, the Long Now VC Fund just started right now. You heard it. Um, you heard but, it heard. But individuals can, um, because often they have different um, both uh, motivations as well as timescales. They may be thinking, oh, you know, this is the way I'm going to be remembered someday, or this, you know, our family is going to be remembered, or something like that. And it, it, it isn't, they're not doing it because I owe to my limited partners a return in five years. 
And I mean, so that I, I suspect it costs, I mean, can you say what, what does a pound of water cost in Lower Earth Orbit right now? <laughs> uh, a good number right now is to put a, a kilogram of anything into Lower Earth Orbit is depending upon how much you launch it at, at a time in the range of $1,000. $1,000. And yeah. so at some point you need to make mining an asteroid for water or some other resource mm -hmm. that's used in orbit or in some other way in space get to that $1,000 a kilogram. I, I will bet you that someday when there are humans out there, you know, extensive activity in space, that they will have uses for a map that we, ha we would just never imagine right now any more than I can imagine in 1950 or something anybody would have thought, wow, people will be, you know, that there would be something like Yelp <laughs> or Airbnb. I mean, who would have thought of that? So I, I think, you know, uh, the, we're, we're going to be very bad right now at guessing what the uses of it are. You know, my argument is that, that mapping in general is, is, is an enabler of a lot of different things. Yeah, and actually the Rumsey Map Archive is a great example yeah. of that. You should all, all the, go all down of, to the Rumsey Map Center. All of those maps were kind of created Stanford for some, tomorrow. some reason um, at great expense and great effort. Mm -hmm. We have one more question some, from the audience. Some over here. Yep. Lightning. If we detect a comet as opposed to a, an asteroid that is incoming and appears to be likely to intercept our position, is there a chance of deflecting it? So comets are very, very different because they're moving it they, they, they don't have the regular orbits around sun in a short period of time so you can calculate their orbits. They tend to come in from far away where it's impossible to see them. They're a hundred or a thousand times further than an asteroid. And they, they suddenly start to come in towards, because something pushes them slightly, start to come in towards the sun. You might have only a few months or so at a much higher speed. They're much larger. In almost every way, they're far, far, far more difficult than asteroids. Luckily, they are far, far, far less numerous. Um, so, um, I think we, yeah, we would we would have a hard time. I mean, are they over a hundred times, a thousand times, ten thousand times less numerous? What's the more than a hundred times less numerous? Gotcha. So right. uh, I don't have a solution. And I think a lot of people. Um, I'm getting a lot of questions here from online. I think you're you're hearing them in the room as well as. You know, what, what are some of the needs that, um, that B612 has and that you are working on right now um, that would be helpful? So here's my plea to the audience. Um, we need a couple of good uh, software engineers. You know, we're building the, the back end of this cloud-based system that analyzes orbits and stores a database and moves it around. And um, when you query an object, it can calculate its orbit and present that data in a useful manner. And that's really a couple of, uh, you know, two, three software engineers. And so what we need is the means to, you know, we need to find the right people and find the means to pay a couple of people. But that's really our need right now. So those of you who are working for some real estate company creating their map, <laughs> you could quit your job, yeah. get paid way less, and you could create a four-dimensional star map for the future. Or if there's any fabulously wealthy software engineers <laughs> who don't need to be paid, please come talk to us. Yes, we, we call those engineers post-economic. <laughs> uh, yeah, so post-economic. And then, uh, um, I mean, what happened? Where's the hardware coming from this? Are you, are you well, guys creating some of your own hardware? Uh, to begin with, you know, the, the map, much of the data is going to show up at our doorstep, right? Um, if we want to go beyond that, and I think we do, then we do have a project looking at um, building these, you know, using f rapid graphics processing units, um, a, a system that can go up into space and, and track the rest of the things that LSST, the LSST telescope will miss. And um, for that, we'll, we'll need some engineers too. I think we're a little further away from that right now. We have, again, a ground-based version running. But um, what our challenge is at the moment is getting these uh, graphics processing units uh, to run in space where there's high radiation. It causes bit flips, it causes things to crash. That's why they don't typically fly uh, commercial electronics in space, or it doesn't work as well. Um, we think we can solve that, and we're actually hoping to get started on that very, very soon. Um, but there, there might be hardware engineers, too, that we might need in a year or so, but I think we're about a year out on that. Space-hardened video game graphics cards? 
Exactly right. Yes. Well, I want to thank you very much for working, A, on this project when our governments clearly don't really work on well, them. They're, they, they're they starting do, to. They do. I don't wanna, you know. Hey, but they're, I think, they're buying that LSST telescope. Yeah. Well, That's B612 has been at the forefront of this for so long, and I appreciate it so much, and uh, I think the rest of civilization does as well. And I want to... Um, I want to give you a challenge coin from oh, the interval. Cool. Thank uh, you. And please give him a round of applause. Can I, can I turn Thank you the, very much. Can I turn this in for a software engineer? Uh, yeah, those are good for one software engineer. Okay, Spend can it I, wisely. Can I, can I have another one? <laughs> Next talk. Okay. Right. After, Tomorrow. After, thank you very much. If you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more long-term thinking lectures hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org slash podcast or wherever you like to listen.